Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you here. Last Sunday morning, we discussed the New Testament church. We looked at Christ establishing it with His death on the cross and then the subsequent preaching by the disciples on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Every Christian should want to be a part of the New Testament church and not a church established by a man. We also discussed the concept of denominationalism and how it goes against the teachings of unity in Scripture. We will be continuing some of these thoughts this morning. This building... We've got PowerPoint. On, right? Yeah, now it's on. This building... This group of believers here in Cottontown was established in the early 20th century. However, the patterns of thought were established in A.D. 33 when Christ died on the cross. This holding to New Testament teachings is important to those who profess to be the New Testament church. Every church should ask, is what we are doing found in the New Testament That's where Christ's teachings are. What else would you ask? You shouldn't ask, does it feel good? But rather, does it challenge me? Not, did my grandfather do it? But did the Apostle Peter do it? Not, does my preacher say it's right? But did Jesus say it's right? Every church should ask these questions. Of course, including us. Is the church of Christ a denomination? To some people, we are. They see us as just any other church, and I get it. We have a preacher, a youth minister, we worship God, we sing. We do many other things that nearly any other church might do. To many, we are just another church. However, we are not a denomination. Because we do not want to be a branch of the Christian faith. Denomination means division. Remember? We don't want division. We want unity. Unity in teachings and principles as Christ has told us. We want to be firmly planted in the Word of God and teach what He has instructed us to teach for over 2,000 years. We, however, can make it a denomination when we hold to traditions above Scripture. Sometimes what we like and what God approve, would approve go against one another. And we need to be honest with ourselves in these moments. But that's perhaps another sermon. So what is the restoration movement? I told you last week I would discuss this today. It's a very interesting study. This will be just a very brief overview of it. I encourage you to go to the Gospel Advocate, 21st Century. We've probably got some books in the library. I have a few books about the Restoration Movement. This is it briefly. Around the turn of the 19th century, there arose simultaneously almost in different places around the world under the direction of different men an effort to unite all professed Christians by restoring the true and only New Testament church in doctrine, in life, and in practice. So many churches had gotten away 
from the Bible at the time, they saw a need to follow the New Testament pattern without human additions or subtractions, without denominational names, organizations, creeds, or practices. Those making up this movement identified themselves with the Church of Christ, although as we talked about last week, it could be called any number of things. Much of this happened actually in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, just a little bit over three hours to our northeast. Many restoration movement leaders felt that allegiances to denominations were becoming stronger than allegiances to Christ. What a scary thought. They believed that denominationalism was a strong dividing force between brothers and sisters in Christ. The restoration movement sought to stop denominationalism and restore the church we read of in the New Testament. The leaders of the restoration movement are, you see here, just a few of them. Martin W. Stone, Alexander Campbell, and Raccoon John Smith. To some, these men are nothing more than denominational leaders. But the difference is that their intent was to lose man's authority and say, look to the Lamb. Look to Jesus. Check it out for yourself. Read your Bible. We take for granted we can read this. There was a time in our world's history that a common man couldn't read it. He just had to take for granted what somebody else told him that it said. John the Baptizer said in John 3 and verse 30, as he was preparing the way for Jesus, he said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. It was not the purpose of these men to bring followers to them, but to say, hey, we want you to follow Christ more than we think any of us are following Him right now. We follow Jesus in the inspired Scriptures alone. Because Alexander Campbell didn't die for my sins, Barton W. Stone was not inspired, and Raccoon John Smith did not ascend into heaven. These men stepped out of the popular perception of the day, thankfully, regarding church work. And they said, we are doing it wrong. We are doing it man's way. We need to do it God's way. This is the restoration movement in an us Let's talk about what maybe a different word might mean as it commonly happens today. As people start up different churches, they may think, well, you know, I went to a church that was like this and it looked this way. Well, I'd like to change that a little bit. That's more of a change or a, or a reformation. Imagine that the Church of Christ, the New Testament, started where the original word is. And as changes happened over the decades and the centuries, it, it took on different forms represented by the numbers that you see there. So if the original church could be considered stage one, and somebody would say at stage seven, because it had changed so much, by stage eight it would actually look very different from the original church. This is a reforming, a reworking of something that's already there. Something that actually may already be broken because it's not the original. The restoration movement leaders, as do we, wanted a return to that original. Because they were far gone from how it was, from the teaching of the New Testament. When you look at it, Matthew to Revelation, how is it organized? How did they worship? What did the preacher do? Elders, deacons? 
When these men and others looked back at the New Testament and they looked at themselves in the mirror, they could not honestly say, we're doing it the way the Bible said. They said, we got we to make a U-turn. We've got to go back to the original. Because when you restore something, that's why it's called the restoration movement, it means you put it back to its original state. This is a 1949 Mercury. You can tell the difference between it and a 1950 because the rear windshield on the 49 has three panes of glass. It has two metal bars, three panes of glass. The 1950 is one solid sheet. The 51, the rear taillights are a little different. They angled back down to the ground. 49, 50, 51. Beautiful hot rod. Whenever you take it and you want to change it, it might look something like this. Apple green. See the doorpost is shaved, which is real slick. Shaved and French. If you notice the grill, that's from a Hudson. Very popular grill that they put into hot rodded Mercury's. But that one is not the original. It's been changed. It's been reformed. The original would look like this, you see. Back to its original state whenever it Rolled off the assembly line in Detroit, possibly. So this is the difference. You can take something wanting to make it better. That green one probably has air conditioning. Trying to make it better. Look, it's slick. Lowered it. And it's a slick car, no doubt. But it's not the original. The story of Barton W. Stone captures best the essence, I think, of the restoration movement as it was occurring in those days. Stone was born in Maryland on December 24th, 1772. At the time of his birth, the religious world was in a state of confusion. Chaotic conditions prevailed among differing denominations as well as in the midst of each one. Stone joined one of these denominations and actually went on to their seminary where after his studies he had doubts about some of their teachings and doctrinal points. When the time came for him to take their confession and be ordained as a minister, in that particular denomination. He was asked, as all seminary students are, will you hold to our teachings? His reply went as such. I will hold to the teachings as far as it is consistent with the Word of God. This showed his great respect. Even while he was in some confusion, this showed his great respect for the Word of God. These simple words summed up what people in those days wanted from a church. They wanted the Bible. And the world needs it today more than ever. The Restoration Movement had several principles that it followed. Well, Dale, aren't these just creeds that that are, are part of the Church of Christ? Well, you see, they're a little different. Because they point to biblical truths and not away from them. And they certainly don't add to what God has said. One of those principles that we even follow today is this. No creed, but Christ. Many other churches may have creed books, may have rules, may have bylaws that they follow. The Restoration Movement leaders said, no creed, but Christ. It's the only book we need. There's a warning in Revelation 22 to not add or take away from the book. 
I testify, John wrote on the Isle of Patmos, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, and others were tired of man-made creeds, things that were not found in the Bible. They were thirsty for the Word of God. John 4, 14, Jesus told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of my water will never thirst. Besides, who else should we follow but Jesus? Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we look to Scripture, we want to see what Jesus told the disciples and then bring it to our day and age and say, ha ha, this is how we must be acting. This is the sentiment that we must continue to carry. Otherwise, it will change and be reinvented, be remolded, be, be reformed into something that does not resemble the original at all. John 6 and verse 66. As a result of this, you see, Jesus at this point had made some strong demands of His disciples. So He'd been really preaching to them at this point. And so it starts in verse 66. As a result of this, of what Jesus had said, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. So he told them some things that they didn't like. We've got to do that some today. We've got to challenge people. Not tell them what they want. If I'm, if we're preaching something and, and people are coming in and we're just preaching them, preaching it to bring them in, you know, we got we got to look at something different there because here Jesus was telling them what they needed to hear and they didn't want any part of it. Verse sixty-seven. So Jesus said to the twelve, "You do not want to go away, also, do you?" To his disciples, Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life." We have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. As a church, we must look to Scripture. As an individual, you must look to Scripture and have that very same sentiment. Jesus says, you don't want to go too, do you? That's what He's asking each one of us today. Whenever we leave here, go back out into the world. He's saying, hey, you don't want to leave too, do you? And hopefully we carry the lessons with us and say, no, I don't want to leave, Lord. Because You are the only One who has eternal life. No creed but Christ. Another principle was this. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, love. One of the main ideas of the early Restoration leaders was Christian unity, which is found in Jesus' prayer in John 17. This phrase helped to show how all believers should treat one another. When it comes to matters of the essentials of the faith, well, what is that, Dale? What are the essentials of the faith? Christ's divinity, the fact that He was born of a virgin, that He's the Son of God, those are essentials. Also, the authority of the Bible, that we only look to it, we don't look to any other. Those are essential things that we must hold to. But the restoration movement admitted that not all believers would agree on certain non-essentials, things that you could look at and say, well, we can do this or do that. In such cases, we are to respect the opinions of others. This would include things like the organization of the worship service. Some congregations do the Lord's Supper after the sermon. You know, that's, that's a matter of opinion. 
Some use only songbooks. Some use projectors exclusively. Some have carpet. Some have, you know, different building designs. These are non-essentials. But that some people would split the church over. Color of the carpet, um, this or that, lots of things people would look to and say, that's an essential. The type of doorknob and then split the church. Just like Jesus told us not to in John chapter 17. So we must hold to those things that are essential. That Jesus says, you know, if you come to me, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when Peter told them in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, we've got to hold to that. We've got to hold to these essential things. But also to know that if we brought in individual chairs in here rather than pews, the building wouldn't burst into flames. It would be okay. Because that's, that's not an essential. How you're sitting, what you're sitting in, you know, that's not an essential thing. But yet some people hold to it as though Paul penned the verses himself. The one, finally, who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Some people think God is the carpet. Some people think He's the type of brick. A lot of different things. But God is love. And we should remember that. For above all, we are to treat our fellow believers with love. Disagreements will appear in the church and should be handled with love and prayer. As we interact with our brethren and with those who might believe much more differently than we do, love can do a great deal of things when bringing others to Christ. Finally, this was a verse I was looking to earlier. Holy Father, keep them in Your name, the name which You have given Me, that they may be one even as we are. For we are Christians only. That is what the Restoration Movement leaders wanted to see. No other name but Christian. The only name we should have is that of Christ. And exemplify those things that reflect Him. For He died for us. So why would we wear another name? When speaking to people about their churches, where do their allegiances lie? Theirs like sometimes our own. Their allegiance may lie in the building, in different superficial things, in the color of the walls even. Our allegiances can lie outside of Christ as well, for we are all human. But Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Our allegiances can lie outside other things other than this. But hopefully our name will reflect this at all times because that is the only name by which we can be saved. Our allegiances can lie with things like, well, that's just how we've always done it. Isn't that kind of the sentiment that the Pharisees held to? That's the way we've always done it. And here comes Jesus, this son of a carpenter, trying to change people, trying to change things. Jesus, go back, go back to Bethlehem. Go back to where you came from. We don't need you around here. A lot of churches do that too. Jesus, we don't need you around here. We like how we're doing it just fine. Well, Jesus wants to change the world. He wants to change you. And that's how He'll do it. With or without you, actually. Because Jesus works through a lot of people in a lot of different ways according to Scripture. And if you'll hold to that and become a New Testament Christian today, 
You can be a part of the New Testament church that Scripture teaches about. And know that your allegiance can lie with Him. That your allegiance can be with the One who has saved the world from its sins. And how do you do that? You become a Christian by being baptized into the water that's behind me. Or in the Red River. It's kind of cold. A lot of people want the more natural feel. And I'm all about that. But you can be baptized this very hour. And put on Christ and be added to the New Testament church that the Bible, the Word of God speaks about. And may we all work to make sure that we are constantly making sure that we are being connected with those early church leaders. And by that I mean the day Jesus died on the cross and that it was established in Acts chapter 2. That we always be mindful of how it all started and continue on to this day as well. If you have a need, please come forward now as we stand and sing to encourage you.